Hello, and thank you for joining us on this week's episode of BZD Voices. This is Masha and Svenja speaking, and today we are joined by Dr. Lucy Hall, lecturer at the University of Amsterdam. Her research focuses on the connection between gender, violence, and protection. She has also worked for the UN Refugee Agency on questions of forced displacement and gender. Thank you so much, Lucy, for being here today. We are really looking forward to this episode. Um, we have a lot of questions to ask you, but um, would you first mind just introducing yourself a bit more? Yeah, hi. First of all, thanks so much for having me. It's such a delight to um, talk about the, the questions that I know we're going to talk about this afternoon. Um, so as you said, I'm a, a lecturer at the University of Amsterdam. My teaching mostly focuses on international relations, international security, um, gender, human security and conflict. Uh, so basically, I get to teach all the things that I also research, which is such a honor and privilege because I, I, I really can sort of convey my excitement and my enthusiasm for the questions that I think matter in global politics and ignite that in my students. At least that's what I think I do. Um, so my plans for 2022 is to actually like publish that PhD and parts of that research um, to sort of get my ideas more out there when it comes to things like gender and mass atrocity crimes, um, the women, peace and security agenda, uh, but also like I'm, I'm sort of turning in some current projects to think about gender and natural disasters and climate change, as well as a project I'm working on um, in, the, in the context of the Netherlands, which is also like I've lived here in Amsterdam for a long time, but I've never really taken the Netherlands as a point of departure for research. Um, but the rise of incel online misogyny as a potential violent extremist threat. Um, yeah, so that's that's oh. what I've been doing. That's where I'm, what I'm doing at the moment and, and where my thoughts are going. It's going in many directions, but, but yeah, those common things for me are really like those questions of gender, questions of protection and, and questions of violence. Yeah. In the yeah. so it is kind of clear by now that this is the future of securitization, but is it also the future of protection? Because those are different things. And yeah, I don't know if we can answer this question. question. No, no, I think it's a great question. Um, I, I, I have quite like, so I have questions that come with more questions, right? So in terms of protection, if we really think about it in relation to refugee law and refugee protection, um, there are countries like Canada, I believe, are using artificial intelligence in courtroom decision-making processes to determine refugee status. So that, that is a thing. Um, in the context of the paper that, that we were working on, we presented the use of artificial intelligence as another layer of EU non-entree, like non-entry measures. Um, so placing it within this continuum that is, you know, um, airplane policies of like, you know, screening people prior to them actually getting on an airplane, um, mm -hmm. as well as, you know, pushbacks, like pushbacks at sea, um, naval kind of pushback operations that we see in the Mediterranean, like all of these measures that the EU, but also Australia, uh, um, other parts of the global north, all of these measures that they implement to prevent people making that protection claim, um, making that protection claim that they have a right to make. And that that's really sort of the normative concern in, in that paper and in a lot of my work is how kind of securitization and protection that there's a relationship there um, and for me that the the analytical emphasis is often on the protection element of like what do these measures mean in terms of how people experience or don't experience protection i could i feel like i feel like i just i would like to through a lecture right now <laughs> yeah. it's, it's super yeah um okay so 
but we are also here to ask to continue asking questions um yeah so we've talked about refugees but it's also important to or slightly mentioned it but it's also important to um discuss the events that cause this displacement and the role of gender in that and mm. obviously we are part of the Yazidi legal network so maybe it's interesting to discuss your um well position is a bit of an odd word but maybe any insights you would have for us on the role of gender in this conflict mm. um yeah i mean so many right but maybe like where i come from and the, the research that i do is really interested in what's the connection between the forced displacement of populations and mass atrocity crimes so when you know when people are forced to move because of human rights violations because of you know indiscriminate weapons being used cluster bombs chemical weapons like what are the what are the connections between people being forced to move and where does it tip into or lead to genocide and you know the the Yazidi question is horrifically an example of that interplay between a forced displacement, a forced movement of a particular group of people, and that being part of a genocidal campaign. Um, and the violences that exist across a forcibly moving people and that forcible movement of people also having a genocidal intent, an intent to destroy a particular group of people. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that the ways like this is, uh, in my line of work, you end up saying such horrible things. And sometimes it sounds like I'm really detached from the actual horror of these things. Um, but quite, you know, quite literally like the ways in which tactics to carry out forced displacement are gendered. Um, tactics to carry out genocide are gendered. So the ways in which ISIS would have targeted men and women differently, um, would have sort of separated families, would have intentionally killed, you know, groups of men because they were considered potential combatants and enslaved groups of women because that was also part of that genocidal logic. Um, that, yeah, and I think that is evidence of why in both understanding how these acts of atrocity um, our gender is also important in understanding the the needs of those populations first of all right so if you've got populations um, that have experienced that trauma and experienced that genocidal violence and find themselves displaced that there is not you know humanitarian need there is not just about food shelter and housing there's a protection element there um, there's a need to understand the protection elements of, for people individually and as families, but also as a group um, because the violence is genocidal, right? Like, yeah, like individuals and, and families will have their own protection needs based on the sorts of things that they have experienced or perhaps based on, um, yeah, based on the, 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 the atrocities that they may have experienced themselves. Like if you are a victim of rape um, or a survivor of rape, um, you obviously have different needs. Um, but I, I think, you know, in this sort of humanitarian space and, and responding to those needs as a group, that 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 group that identity needs to be there because the violence was genocidal, was and is, you could probably say. You know, yeah. like it's it's not like this violence has ended. Yeah. And then what would you say, I mean, you kind of touched on it a little bit now, but I want to connect two questions. So we have generally, we're, we're speaking a bit of the misconceptions maybe, or maybe we don't, if we talk about just people learning about this, they just don't know that this is also gendered. And then we have stuff like the Women's Peace and Security Agenda, which is perhaps reproducing misconceptions. And then how would you say, um, if we talk about post-conflict reconstruction or, or, mm -hmm. or trauma um, with these families and maybe specifically women, 
what is that what needs to change and what are misconceptions being reproduced by agencies like or, or institutions like the UN that yeah yeah oh, that's a great question um because I, I as I was talking I heard myself doing that as well right and I think this is the tension that I feel in both the research and the practice that I'm involved in and because there, there is a, a, a default reflex in public discourse everywhere that associates women with motherhood and women with children and that is particularly prevalent in the context of reporting on civilian casualties um reporting on you know armed conflict reporting on refugee and mass migration flows like you will often find that sort of you know there were civilian casualties including women and children um that there's that kind of additional layering of like it was women and children therefore that says something. Um, and a lot of people have actually asked me like, well, is it, but, but, but it's true, right? Like there are just more women and children in those situations. And I'm like, well, not always, but okay, let's move on from that because it's also about what does that conflation and that repeated conflation of women and children do for how we understand women as more than mothers, as more than bodies that reproduce as more than people that exist within a family domestic space. And I think it has to do a lot with how we understand agency and how we understand who gets to make the decisions. And I often sort of come back to this idea of like, okay, well, we can critique this discourse of women and children and we can point out how it limits women, how it limits our imagination of what women are capable of, um, but what do we do when presented with populations of displaced persons that are largely women and children? And Cynthia Coburn, who is also like one of these sort of thinkers and academics in gender and conflict, who's really inspired me, like it's the answer is really simple. You ask women. Yeah. And, and ask them, you know, like you were like women who do have children will have needs that are connected to themselves being mothers. But there will also be needs. There will also be political ideas that they have that are not connected to their identity as mothers. And they themselves are the best people to articulate that. Yeah. And I, I think that often gets overlooked. And I think women, particularly in, in situations of just, the the most massive and atrocious crimes right the the crime of genocide that there there is still incredible amounts of agency of both men and women that need to be given the space they need in order for those affected populations to articulate this is what we need yeah. um and that really comes back to, you know, my experience working with UNHCR, where like first line of questioning or the first line of like doing anything is acknowledging that the population who's being displaced or the population that needs protection are the best people who will tell you what kinds of protection they need. Um, and did you also, did you feel like there was too much of this because that's how I kind of imagine okay we take women to the table to the to the discussion table but then we what we have is maybe one or two women who are now seen to represent all women in yes. this conflict um, and then we have our quota where we have our opinion and everything yeah. we need and I think that there that's yeah. also something yeah. yeah and we take that gender box and we move on yeah, yeah. and I, I think you know there's maybe to make this even more pragmatic um you know, this women and children discourse, yes, incredibly problematic, needs to be deconstructed and critiqued and thought of in different ways. But getting those women or getting women to a table where that they want to be at because they have a stake in how a conflict is resolved, that has to be done in a way that possibly asks the question of, are there women who want to be at those negotiations who need childcare? And how do you facilitate a negotiation, a peace negotiation in Geneva when getting to Geneva, when you've got two small kids and you're a single parent because your husband was killed in genocidal violence, how do we facilitate 
that woman's voice, providing childcare, providing the space for her to have the resources in order to have her voice heard. And that's what I mean about, you know, like there are like, I'm not trying to sort of say like there are, you know, there are women with children and, and mothers who need our help. Like, I, I mean, I'm not trying to say it in that sort of patronizing way, but asking women of what do you need in order to arrive at this peace negotiation? And often the, the you know, the, the, the solutions to participation and meaningful participation are things like childcare, are things like flights and visas and, you know, very pragmatic things um, that maybe get overlooked. Um, and also what I really hate is, is the assumption that if women are, you know, in that space, that domestic space, that their first concerns will be on their children and therefore they're not interested in participating in peace talks or negotiations. And I really just think, isn't it the opposite? You know, it, wouldn't your desire, and I don't think you need children to desire peace, but wouldn't your interest in peace and security and, and contributing to a negotiated settlement, like, would that not be more inspired by the fact that you would want your children to grow up in peace and security? Um, so I think, I think there are a lot of questions to be asked around the logistics of peace negotiations and how they are gendered. Because we, we talk so much about, oh, we need women at the table and, and you're very right to point out, like, we get women to the table and they're assumed to represent all women and it's a checkbox exercise and at the end of the day, are their voices heard? Maybe, probably not. But I, I also think it's really important to think through um, how to get those voices at the table, step one, and how to have those voices heard, step two. Um, and it's the same in humanitarian situations, right, where if you want to empower women and engage women in advocating for their own, you know, rights and advocating for their own protection, um, ensuring that there is safe and adequate childcare and safe and adequate access to reproductive health and safe and adequate access to abortion is central. Um, and I, I really kind of... I find these questions of sexual and reproductive health very interesting in these spaces. Um, I also find the question of, you know, providing safe and accessible abortion also, you know, often overlooked, um, particularly, particularly in situations where, um, like here my mind goes back to, you know, the use of enforced pregnancy as part of a genocidal campaign. You know, we saw that in former Yugoslavia, um, we also see it in other genocidal campaigns and being able to provide women who experience that as, as you know, a horrendous form of genocidal violence, um, being able to provide them with choice to keep that pregnancy or not. And I don't, I don't hear that. I don't. I think those conversations are happening, but if they are happening, it's not part of a broader discussion that I think needs to maybe be had in relation to how peace and security connects to women's bodily autonomy um, and their autonomy around access to reproductive rights, including abortion. Yeah, absolutely. Because the conversation, if, if we kind of go back to the case, in, in, in question of um, the 2014 genocide in um, Sinja, um, the, the only question that is really being asked is what happens with the children as those children are not always allowed to return as they are not born to, to Yazidi pe uh, parents, mm. but it never is about the kind of trauma that the mother experienced or the, yeah. And even I now say the mother, not the woman. Mm. 
which but is it's, I, I yeah yeah and I think it would be about asking that woman like how how does how does she feel about that child being the result of an enforced pregnancy um or that child being the result of sexual violence um and there's there's I mean the way that that unfolded also in former Yugoslavia um with children being rejected with the with the mothers who decided to keep those children being rejected by their communities and the consequences of that um yeah but you're right like it, it is the the concerns and to an extent right are rightly placed on what are the rights of that child in that situation um but I also wonder if what's playing out here is this idea or this assumption that regardless of the ways in which that child or children are conceived that a woman's maternal instincts will win and I think that is so problematic um because I I just I think well first of all I can't speak for women who've had children conceived of rape I, I would never assume to but that's why I think you know opening up these questions of peace and security and trauma and post-conflict if you can even call it post-conflict or post-genocide that these questions of sexual and reproductive health um, are often overlooked and in particularly these questions of abortion are often overlooked because that that question of abortion completely shatters that myth of maternal instinct winning out and maternal love winning over these massive amounts of atrocity and violence that led up to the birth of that child um, and that's not to say like that that doesn't happen like I, I it can and it does um but I, I find the assumption that women will self-sacrifice um through that like logic of a woman's primary identity is that maternal identity like I, I think that needs pulling apart in order to understand the violence that leads up to the conception of those children and and the the aftermath because no one has good answers for this yeah, but I feel like it really shows the way you just answered that, how layered it is and how much it's also a circle and how much we assume what do women need post-conflict, what do they, but then also what does that reproduce for the next potential conflict and how we see the women's role in it. And it really shows that there is no end to this, that it really is, we can start at the beginning and there, it really goes into the last detail. And so many things, I feel like even if you, have read about it and know a bit about it there's always more there's always more that that you have to learn about how it's yeah how it's gendered mm. and i feel yeah. like that came across the way you put it yeah it's and on, on 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 the other hand it also you say nobody has good answers but because there's such an ethical dilemma in a sense who are we to put these women somewhere and say explain to us what you need or how can I, or assume that they kind of have already mm. moved on in their trauma that they know mm. what they need mm. so how do you go about this kind of on one hand hearing what people have to say but on the other hand not kind of making it their problem to explain mm. Mm. Um, I don't know if there's an answer to this at the moment, but yeah, that's kind of what I, I, mean, I, I think like a lot of stuff is just really like providing the space and resources for people who do want to tell their stories and actually listening um, and responding. Um, and I was actually sort of thinking, you know, what I was saying in, in relation to sexual and reproductive rights and, and the provision of abortion, like that has to come from the group affected, from the people affected, because there's also a horrific history and an ongoing use 
of forced abortion that is also genocidal, right? Like that is also part of how these violences, it's either forcing women to have children or forcing them not to have children. And so any kind of conversation around what are women's health needs post-conflict, post-genocide have to come from sensitive and sustained engagement um, because, we, I mean, the, the, the gynecological complications that come from repeated and violent rape, like that causes such violence to, to, to women's bodies um, with, you know, complications that mean it's, you know, it's repeated urinary tract infections. Um, like, I, like, I could go on with the health consequences, but like the enormous sort of impact on a woman's body that either repeated rape or forced pregnancy has, um, that that provision of healthcare needs to, I, I think it should be part of, of a discussion, but a discussion that is led and uh, a discussion that comes from the women who are, you know, are, are the survivors of those crimes. Yeah. I can imagine though the critiques that I would get on some of the things I've said though, which is like, yeah, but isn't the provision of abortion, isn't that just a very Western idea? But I, I, I really, you know, I, I could critique myself, but like, I, I really wonder if it is something that is overlooked. And I think it's, I think oftentimes it makes sense to, to say, okay, is this a Western idea, but we're not speaking about any, we're not imposed. It's not about imposing. It's about having something choice. there that is not there yet and seeing yeah. what that can do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in situations like with the, the with the genocide in the Sinjar province, like I don't think those women need anyone coming there to say you've been the victim of a horrendous crime. They know that. Mm. But maybe that as a starting point to then strategize, um, to collect evidence, to build the case, if if legal accountability is important to them that that's that's where the conversation is at um but i i really find it tricky like i really find it a little bit disturbing sometimes when people sort of assume that you know the the experience of sexual violence is somehow different for for women and i i think it is but i think all women know that it's a violation yeah and I think there it's really good not to say that one is and one isn't, but to really conceptualize it as a weapon, a weapon of whether it's war, when we're in a war and a conflict, it's a weapon of conflict. And when we're, let's say in Western society, it's, it's a weapon of a different, but that's, I think, also a way to understand it, that mm. the strategic behind it also, especially when we're talking about genocide. Mm. And I, I, think I think that's one area of feminist research that has sort of been quite good at unpacking well we don't want to reproduce this hierarchy of rape um, we don't want to sort of create a legal and political system under which there are some some rapes that are legally higher than others so you know the fact that we have at the international criminal court quite advanced language around sexual violence in relation to war crimes crimes against humanity ethnic cleansing and genocide um, like that is all important and a huge, you know, and, and the result of a huge amount of like feminist work, feminist theorizing and feminist activism, that means that those laws are in place. Mm -hmm. But how those laws actually translate in reality is, is a whole other question. And one thing, again, like I have questions, I don't have answers, but when it comes to enforcing and implementing law, the collection of evidence is critical, right? Like that's the first step of building a legal case. In so-called peaceful societies where there is an absence of armed conflict, the collection of evidence in situations of sexual violence and rape is not good anywhere. It's not good in the Netherlands. It's not good in Australia. It's not good in the US. 
you know, the amount of unprocessed evidence from, from reports of rape in the US is huge. And I really find it interesting to think about if we can't get it right on a domestic level in situations of so-called peace and security, how does that translate in post-conflict situations and humanitarian situations? Like how do we do evidence collection in order to build the legal case for the use of rape in a genocidal campaign to be put in front of a court? I'm not saying it can't be done, but I, I, I know that that is one of the, the hurdles of actually seeking justice for these types of sexualized and gendered crimes. Um, and I, I think, you know, my mind often works in these sort of like, where are these continuums of violence? Like, I, it's not to make the comparison between, you know, this rape is the same as this rape, but are there, are there similarities in terms of the obstacles that we face in seeking justice, like legal criminal justice for rape of all of its forms? Um. How do we go about people who, or not people, but maybe the the rhetoric of, oh, there are more important problems to solve first. How do we prioritize the gendered aspects of conflict? Mm. Um, Cynthia Enloe, who is just, you know, the a powerhouse of feminist international relations, like she often talks about, the prioritizing in post-conflict and the ways in which um, questions of gender and questions of sexual violence are often pushed aside as this sort of like it's a patriarchal time clock, right? Like it think there are just more important things right now. Um, I mean, aside from the kick in the guts that that is to women on the front lines. Um, to say that there are more important things. Aside from that, I just think it is extremely short-sighted to disregard gender as something that is secondary or even tertiary, like something that's like, we'll get to that later. And I, I actually think it has to do with the conflation of gender and women, this idea that, oh, when people talk gender in these contexts of negotiation, that it is about um, bringing women to the peace table important though that is but it is also about you know there are also men with masculinities which is also gender at that negotiation table so the assumption that some somehow gender can be detached and put on a to-do list for the next year is just so short-sighted because it is so central to how people think of themselves as as powerful as um or as as less powerful um how they understand their grievances um and how they understand um what a society needs in order to reconstruct or in order to sort of like get to a point where they can feel like there is justice and reconciliation um and again like, I, I just i don't think that that has been done well in many places like um I mean certainly there are questions to be asked around the success of the criminal tribunals of of former Yugoslavia and of Rwanda in the 1990s and as I mentioned you know the, the sort of success or or you know question mark success of the international criminal court like I don't want to live in a world where those things don't exist but I I do think it's um it, it stops it stops a little short to assume that either the gender stuff can come later because it's not as important um, or that having gender written into law is is the end point like it's really not that it's a starting point it's not an end point um, yeah and just well ba basic things like who sells arms to who who is bringing in guns and bombs to situations and like if you just think about what is going on in Ukraine right now you cannot understand that mess and that very real threat of 
um, conflict without uh, like without asking questions around masculinity. Um, yeah, so I, I really and I, I do I also think you know there's a quite a big body of scholarship that demonstrates you know leaving gender off the negotiation table, ignoring the concerns of women, ignoring the gender dynamics that are at play makes for a less sustainable transition into stability. Um, which is why I keep thinking like, I don't know that we have an example of this going well. Um, and I'm thinking again, like former Yugoslavia, like Bosnia right now is not stable. Like there are alarming things coming out of Sarajevo. And it's not to say that, oh, well, if they'd addressed gender back in the Dayton Accords, that things would be better. I, I, I think that's a little bit too short as well, but like they're, they're, they're you know, 1995 Dayton Accord, it was a bunch of dudes, a bunch of militarized dudes sitting around signing a piece of paper. Did that piece of paper have any meaning to women who fled Srebrenica, to women who were searching for the remains of their families? I don't think so. Um, or that they, you know, took that um, dissatisfaction of being ignored. And, and funneled it into campaigning, you know, mothers of Srebrenica and, and campaigning for legal justice and accountability at the ICTY. Um, so I think the interesting thing there is, you know, we see that women are forgotten at, that, at those negotiation moments, less so now, like you still kind of see it getting a little bit better. Um, but what is also interesting is like, women will find a way, like, you can sort of like brush us to the side, but women will find a way and um, it might not look like activism, how men think of, of how androcentric kind of ideas around activism look, but it's there. And if you have feminist lenses, you, you can find it and you can see it and it is powerful. And I think, you know, the Mothers of Srebrenica is, is an example of, um, of that power. Yeah, I think it's also interesting to try and kind of view this through the lens of maybe uh, generational trauma and see how that ad addressing gender at the start might sh uh, bring a shift in, in, in the way that we deal with that trauma or not we deal with the trauma, but the way that the victims deal with that trauma. But mm. if we have the time, I would maybe also like to look at gender on the other side. So on the mm. side of, uh, let's say the perpetrators mm. and how uh, it is, uh, how it's being prosecuted at the moment. We're gonna do a full episode on this later, but if we could mm. shortly touch on that and I'm afraid we'll have to round up after, but. Yeah. Uh, no, super interesting question. Um, yeah so I mean it's legally very interesting the ways in which war crimes have been put on trial like the crimes committed against the Yazidi population have been put on trial in Germany right like there is the case from last year where there was a husband and wife team connected to ISIS who were both found guilty of crimes against humanity um When I was looking back at this, like, first of all, the, the headlines are interesting, right? You see that sort of ISIS bride rhetoric. You see that kind of language. It is also interesting to look at, you know, who, where and who is using that ISIS bride construct um, and compare it to other sort of like journalistic or media outlets who are presenting, you know, women who commit atrocities and are found guilty of these atrocities where they are using different language, um, where they're not using that ISIS bride type sort of discourse. Um, so that's one thing. I think the second thing, um, so this, this husband and wife team were, you know, both found guilty essentially of the same crime from what I could understand from, from the legal documentation. Like they were both found guilty of torturing a Yazidi child um, to the point that that child 
died a really horrific death. Um, and the, the judgments were, well, the sentencing was that the woman who perpetrated this crime was given 10 years and the man was given a life sentence. I can't give like scientifically, you know, like great, like this is me sort of reflecting off, off the cuff a little bit, but there is something there that says, how did two courts come to such different sentencing? Um, and I think it has to do with the ways in which there is a presumption of innocence and um, even when you're not innocent, right? Like even when you're found guilty, there is something around how women are understood which people, and whether that's in courts or whether it's in politics, we're very uncomfortable with violent women because it cut, it just, it flies in the face of how we like to think of women, which is we're maternal, we're caring, and any kind of violence is really abnormal. Um, or even, you know, taking it one step further, like any kind of violence that a woman commits is not necessarily motivated from her personal political aspirations, but from her role as mother, role as, as widow, role as, you know, daughter of prominent person like even when women commit the most horrendous crimes the ways in which the law understands them the ways in which their defense team might even present them always taps in to these very feminine characteristics and this sort of assumption that you know women share this biology that whether or not we have children or whether we don't have children, that there is something inherent to women that makes us less capable of atrocious, violent crimes. Um, and I, I would hazard it a guess as well, is it in this case, like I think this couple also has a child and that maybe the sentencing is lighter for the woman because, again, her role as mother might have taken priority there. Um, and it's not that I would argue for this person, for the, for the, for the, for the, for the, for the guy in this picture, the perpetrator, who's a man, um, you know, I would not want him to have a lesser sentence, but what does that say about how we think about fathers in international politics, um, and in this international law? And I really wonder, like, you know, if the defense team on his side is, is asking questions around, well, doesn't he also have a right to a shorter sentence because he's also a father of a child with this other person. Um, again, not, and this is not me arguing for a lower sentence. Like if anything, life is um, proportionate um, for such a horrific, horrific crime. But yeah, I, I really do think whether it's, you know, in these intense genocidal um, spaces where these types of violence are perpetrated, or whether it's looking at, you know, women leaders in politics, the maternal identity or the identity as women as reproductive bodies, you know, bodies that give birth, that that becomes the point of departure for how we understand what women do. Um, it also becomes a point of departure for how we understand rights and protections. Um, and I think there is like this, this deeper history that feminists are uncovering, are covering and have uncovered, which is showing, you know, women accrued rights under human rights law, humanitarian law, um, also under refugee law to an extent that stems from the assumption that their, their thing in life is being mothers. And again, that might be the case, but what it reproduces is women having rights conditional on their magical reproductive qualities, which is not something that is expected of men. And, and I think, you know, I, like I work a lot on these questions of maternity and motherhood and sometimes the language, it feels really clunky and outdated. I can't, you know, but it, it, it really does. Um, I do find it really striking, even in my own life, the ways in which assumptions around reproduction, assumptions around motherhood, that that is 
often the first cognitive wheel that starts running when it comes to questions of women. Um, and maybe questions that, you know, you'll face when you sort of get to your late 20s and early 30s, which is like, when are you going to have children? And the assumption there, which is like, well, as a woman, you might have this really impressive career, but how is that, you know, how does that fit with this assumption that you should reproduce and have babies? Um, and, and so that, again, that's sort of this continuum where it becomes horrifically violent um, in situations of genocide. And that's that sort of, you know, that forced pregnancy, forced abortion stuff, which really indicates that there are thinking, there are thoughts around women as reproductive bodies when it comes to genocide. But that, that assumption around women as reproductive bodies, it exists in the space of genocide, but it exists in the everyday politics of me being a woman in the Netherlands. And, you know, there was a recent progression yesterday with changing the laws around the thinking time. You know, this idea that there needs to be, if, you want to, if you're a woman who wants an abortion, you need to have, I think, five days of thinking time. And, you know, that assumption embedded in that, which is now gone, like that law has been repealed. If it was a law or policy, I'm not sure. That's gone now. But I think at the core, like what, you know, aside from, from the, the, the pragmatism there, like it's just this really gross assumption that women think in different ways or like if you're given more time that you think differently around your reproductive choices. And it ultimately, I think, denies women full personhood on a number of levels. It denies them full personhood in terms of their bodily autonomy, but it also denies them full personhood in terms of assuming that we have the cognitive and rational abilities to make decisions about our own fucking bodies. And, yeah. and again, I, I don't, like, find me the country where that is done well because I don't think it exists. Yeah. I agree. And I think it's so, I mean, it's, it's also just so important to see about, to really just base on, in very basic terms, understand what it suggests to give something like, just in this example, five days thinking time, like it, there, it suggests so much that is mm. so internalized. And mm. yeah, we, yeah. Yeah, I think this is, this really sums up everything we've talked about. I think we, have almost come to a very natural conclusion. Um, but we do have one last question that we ask all our guests. And that is, if you could say anything to the world, what would it be? Oh, going off what I just said, <laughs> I just feel like, like listen, I'm, and I, I will admit like, like one thing that I, um, really kind of I'm trying to work on is is listening and you know I, I mentioned before like I'm recently kind of like discovering that I have ADHD and I'm like oh wow like now I'm thinking about certain behaviors that um like I interrupt a lot and I'm really really working on that and I think I did a good job today like not interrupting either of you at least I hope so um but just listening and and, and actually listening um, because I think it is so underestimated and I think it's a skill. I think it's something that people can work on. Um, and I, 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 I do think that at a really, you know, fundamental level that people just are looking for recognition um, and I think actually like giving people your time and being able to listen um, and hear what they're trying to say is, is so not done enough. Um, and it's also a gendered thing, right? Like it's also like, you know, you can look at research that shows like the amount of times that women get interrupted and the amount of times that men speak more in meetings, even though women are thought to have speaking more. Um, but just... Yeah, like I, and I, I think that comes from sort of like training myself as someone who want, who does the sort of like long form interviewing as part of my research that you, ha you have to let people say what they want to say 
and and give them and honor them that space um because from there you know like what what we were sort of talking about which is like okay well how do you know when does a woman want to be thought of as as connected to her children and when does she want to be thought of as someone else you know someone with a with a degree or someone with a background in, in nursing or, or medicine and listening to women when they tell you that is central I think listening to anyone when they tell you that is central um, and I think the amount of times that in global politics but also in everyday life where marginalized groups are spoken about but not part of the conversation is is an issue I think yeah I think it's a great like way of of ending this because it really shows listening yes it is the time yes it is giving the space but it's also not uh trying to project preconceived notions onto the person you're listening to and that's exactly what we what the whole what we were talking about the gendered aspect of violence and and conflict is really that is is how in post-conflict reconstruction it's there is preconceived notions that are being reproduced even in an attempt to make things better um, that are the issues. And I think listening really, I mean, it sounds easier than it is, but I think that's really a great way of putting it, yeah. Yeah, and I think if it was so easy, we would live in a better world. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Yeah, well, and thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, this was absolutely, this was so interesting. So I was so caught up in it, it was amazing, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hey. I had goosebumps a couple of times. So thank you wow. so much for joining us. And well, thank you for giving me the story. space and, and honoring my story because, um, yeah, it's it's um, it was lovely to meet with you both. And I think you're both doing such important work. Um, yeah. Thank you. And just even besides the knowledge you've shared with us, you're an incredible person to chat with, and it's really cool to hear your story kind of starting off later but and just sharing that it's okay not to exactly know what's go what's going on but at the same time show that you have this incredible body of knowledge and can share it and articulate it so well so thank you so much thanks you're too kind really <laughs> <laughs> no it was truly a pleasure and uh to our listeners if you have made it all the way to the end Thank you so much for sticking with us. And if you liked it, please feel free to comment, share it with anybody who wants to listen. And don't forget to follow us so you can keep up with the podcast. And for further information about the UCD Legal Network and our projects, please visit our website or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Stay safe and please tune in for our next episode.